Welcome to Extinction Talk Radio. I'm Reverend Billy Talon, and uh, I want to tell you a story. Can I share a story with you? A couple years ago, there was this powerful hurricane, Hurricane Dorian. Do you remember that one? It was coming towards Florida. 200 mile an hour winds, powerful. My father is in his nursing home right there in the path of this storm. So I have to go down there. And I sneak in there just in time and I get in line and buy flashlights and water and food. Help the guys put plywood on the windows and we hunker down in the dark. And father wants to listen to the weather channel, of course. And so we're listening to these Florida meteorologists. <laughs> Dorian is finally moving away from the Bahamas, but is leaving so much destruction behind. Florida morning, weather people, Florida weather people, and they're really, dad has to have the, the volume turned up really loud. After riding out the hard of hearing, blame for that, and turn it up really loud, loud, loud. And after an hour or two, I really can't stand Florida weather people and their funny haircuts and I gotta get out of there. And I said, Dad, I gotta go for a walk. And I go down, I go down to the street and I start walking around the block. It's really windy out here. After about 100 yards or 150 yards, woo, 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 like five or six cop cars. They pull up like they're trapping me there. And I'm going, what, 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 what? And they're saying, you can't be out here just walking around. And I try to incite their uh, compassion. My dad and the weather, the loud weather people try to get a kind of a comedy routine going for them. You know, trying, aren't weather people funny? But I, it didn't work. And, and, and finally, I said, look, 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 don't arrest me, please. I got to walk around the block. And I just walk away. And they don't tackle me or anything, but they follow me. They're following me around the block. And I'm, I, I don't run or anything. I just realize, well, I'm just going to walk and kind of act natural. And I said, but I can't help but think about my black friends. Is this, is, this, is this the way? Is this the way? And then the wind. And then the wind. I realize, I realize the wind seems to be talking to me. The wind is screaming, moaning, moaning, as it whistles around the edges of the building and around the eaves of the rooftops. And, through the trees that are thrashing back and forth and the wind oh, this is really a strong storm and i'm not looking at weather people now i'm looking at the wind itself i'm looking at dorian is talking to me what are you saying the wind the wind is screaming it's got a message what's the meaning the wind
When a person emerges from a flood or a fire and in this heightened state of survival begins to talk about their experience, the report is often spellbinding. The tragic loss of loved ones may be weighing down this soul and he or she may break down crying or laugh and sigh and sit down and stare at the ground. We may be so moved by what we hear that we're changed forever. Our emotions shift. Our values and our vision of change in this era of climate chaos may radically shift along with them. It's possible we will never return to the habits of the passive consumer of news. It isn't easy to stay in the pallid mix of consumer responses if while you take in the story you're stanching a wound or spooning soup into someone's mouth. After Hurricane Sandy, we came back out into the streets and wandered wide-eyed from our terrible experience that night. We filed our unprofessional reports with strangers and neighbors without any research or production. This was the story. This was the storm moving through us. The earth was still talking in us during those first hours before the information was taken up and processed by the corporations for broadcast, before food and water again cost money, the tragedy was still enforcing our humanness. We were helping each other. Listen. We'd best listen to the survivors stumbling out of the maelstrom. This is where the truth of climate change is told, coming to us with stuttering tears and sudden grabbing of the arm. There's a direct line from the suffering of the storms to the focused anger of the protest. The earth unplugged without the corporations mediating, but the thing itself leads to humans unplugged. from the natural world. I'm Savitri D. The 2021 summertime dead zone along the Louisiana and Texas coastlines, an area of low to no oxygen that can kill fish and bottom living organisms, is predicted to cover 4,880 square miles of the Gulf of Mexico's water bottom. The hypoxic low oxygen area is directly linked to the nutrients that run into the Mississippi and Atchafalaya rivers and are carried into the Gulf. The nutrients include nitrogen and phosphorus that are used as fertilizer on farmland and that come from untreated sewage in the 32 states and parts of two Canadian provinces in the watershed. Unmarked graves containing the remains of 215 indigenous children have been discovered on the grounds of a former residential school in the interior of southern British Columbia. The terrible discovery at the former school near the town of Kamloops was announced by the Tekemloops to Squapum people after the site was examined by a team using ground-penetrating radar. We had a knowing in our community that we were able to verify 
To our knowledge, these missing children are undocumented deaths, said Roseanne Casimir, chief of the Tecumlips Tisquapum, in a statement. Some of the remains belong to children as young as three years old, but the causes and timings of their deaths are not yet known. At this time, we have far more questions than answers, said Casimir. The Kamloops Indian Residential School was established in 1890 under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church and closed in 1978. The discovery brings known deaths in residential schools to 3,201, although the true total may never be known due to unaccounted deaths and destroyed files. In Oregon, an ongoing fish kill on the Klamath River due to unprecedented drought is an absolute worst-case scenario and leaves communities wondering how they will make it through the summer. Fish have been dying on the Klamath since around May 4th, according to the Yurok Tribal Fisheries Department. At that time, 97% of the juvenile salmon caught by the department's in-river trapping device were infected with the disease C. Shasta and were either dead or would die within days. Over a two-week period, 70% of the juvenile salmon caught in the trap were dead. This spring, the Klamath Basin is already in extreme and exceptional drought, one of the worst drought years in four decades. The situation has put pressure on an embattled region already caught in a cyclical mode of crisis due to a drying climate. The mass death of juveniles means they'll never make it out to the ocean and never get a chance to lay their eggs. Given the life cycle of a salmon, it also guarantees that the salmon run years from now will be abysmal. A UN report released Thursday warns the world must restore at least 2 billion hectares of land and ocean, an area roughly double the size of Canada to prevent the planet from falling deeper into an ecological crisis fueled by unchecked economic growth. Humans are using nature about 1.6 times faster than it can replenish itself, with farmlands, forests, and oceans that feed the world bearing the heaviest scars. Restoring these degraded ecosystems is essential to prevent widespread hunger and ecosystem collapse. Degradation is already affecting the well-being of an estimated 3.2 billion people. That's about 40% of the world's population. About 80% of the world's arable land is impacted by at least one type of soil degradation, such as aridity or the loss of soil carbon. About two-thirds of marine ecosystems are damaged or degraded. A third of the planet's fish stocks are over-harvested. In recent weeks, nine major fires have been burning in the Brazilian Amazon, heralding an unsettling start to another fire season, which experts say could be a bad one after a particularly dry year. The first major fire of the year occurred on May 19th near the border of Serra Ricardo Franco State Park in the state of Mato Grosso, where all of the nine major fires have occurred. All of the 2021 fires are on land deforested in 2020, emphasizing the connection between deforestation and fire in the Brazilian Amazon. Looking ahead, one expert says we can expect to see patterns similar to last year with fires in deforested areas early in the season, with a possible shift to standing forests as the dry season intensifies. In the Pacific, there have been at least six major spills since October that dumped more than 3,000 cargo containers into the ocean along shipping routes between Asia and the U.S. They include the loss of 100 containers from the one Aquila on October 30th and 750 containers from the Maersk Essen on January 16th. Both ships encountered rough weather while delivering goods to the U.S. Experts say these types of spills, which tend to fly under the public's radar, put containers into the sea that pose potential hazards to the health of the ocean. They're like time capsules of everything we buy and sell sitting in the deep sea. 
Those lost containers may harm wildlife and ocean health by crushing aquatic habitats or introducing new seabed features that change biological communities or even aid the spread of invasive species. They can also release hazardous cargo, such as the 6,000 pounds of sulfuric acid that went into the sea when the Maersk Shanghai lost containers off the North Carolina coast in 2018. Despite that potential for danger, no one is tracking the lost containers in the Pacific, and opinions vary about where they will come to rest. Many are likely on the ocean floor, but an unknown number may have ruptured and disgorged their contents which typically include many thousands of consumer items made of plastic. They could float for years in the ocean or wash ashore in Alaska, Hawaii, or other locations. To date, the only debris known to come ashore from this winter's accidents are giant waterlogged sacks of chia seeds, which hit Oregon beaches in December following the loss of six containers from a ship near the California coast. Federal biologists are still cleaning smelly globs of the seeds from threatened snowy plover nesting habitat in April. Federal biologists were still cleaning smelly globs of the seeds from threatened snowy plover nesting habitat in April. The administration of President Joe Biden on Friday announced it would restore protections under the Endangered Species Act, which were loosened by his predecessor Donald Trump. It is not clear how this decision will impact the nearly 1,000 gray wolves being culled in the state of Idaho. An international research team studying organs has found that the brain and the testes have the highest number of common proteins. Scientists initiated a study that involved analyzing the proteins produced by different parts of the body and then comparing them to see similarities. The researchers found the greatest similarities between the brain and testicles, 13,442 of them. This finding suggests that the brain and the testicles share the highest number of genes of any organs in the body. There may be a reason for the similarities between the proteins produced by the two organs. Scientists note, for example, that prior research efforts have shown a link between brain disorders and sexual dysfunction, and some have even found a link between the quality of sperm produced and intelligence. Between 1991 and 2018, more than a third of all deaths in which heat played a role were attributable to human-induced global warming. The study used data from 732 locations in 43 countries around the world and shows for the first time the actual contribution of man-made climate change in increasing mortality risks due to heat. Overall, the estimates show that 37% of all heat-related deaths in the recent summer periods were attributable to the warming of the planet due to anthropogenic activities. This percentage of heat-related deaths attributed to human-induced climate change was highest in Central and South America and Southeast Asia. And in activist news, the blockades at Ferry Creek in British Columbia continue. Canadian police have arrested more than 140 people at ongoing protests in the Ferry Creek and Kaikou's watersheds on southern Vancouver Island, part of an enforcement of an injunction that has become a flashpoint over BC's logging practices and the province's remaining old-growth forests. Protesters gathering at Ferry Creek have said they are protecting some of the last old-growth rainforest left in BC. The Ferry Creek watershed lies in the territory of the Pachidat First Nation. 
Recent sightings of the endangered western screech owls in the area have been confirmed by government scientists, but it's not yet clear how this will influence the scheduled logging which is expected to yield less than $20 million. Opposition to the activists comes almost exclusively from loggers and their families, and many in the Canadian province think the government should just buy out the workers and leave the trees alone. There is no sustainable way to log an old-growth forest because the value of a 250, 500, or 1,000-year-old tree can no longer be quantified. And now, the sounds of extinction. The western screech owl. Western screech owls live mainly in forested habitats, especially in bands of deciduous trees along canyons and other drainages. Common trees include cottonwood, aspen, alder, water birch, oak, and big leaf maple. Western screech owls are carnivores. They eat mostly small mammals. Their diet can vary tremendously. They are sit and wait predators, perching inconspicuously on tree branches and watching the ground for prey. Western screech owls nest in tree cavities excavated by woodpeckers. They may also use naturally occurring cavities such as those formed where branches have broken off a trunk. Western screech owls are nocturnal. They are socially monogamous, meaning that pairs raise young together, although both sexes may also mate outside the pair. The male and female in a pair often preen each other. During courtship and mating, they sing duets, and the male presents food to the female. Owlets leave the nest before they can fly well. They remain with their parents for about five weeks after leaving the nest site. Western screech owls are threatened by human encroachment. The streamside vegetation where they live and thrive tends to be prime real estate for humans as well. High density development and clear cut forestry have a negative impact on their habitat because they are dependent on standing dead trees for their nest sites. And hear the sound of the western screech owl. And this is Extinction Talk Radio. I'm Billy Tallon. Uh, thank you, Savitri D., for news from the natural world. Next up is John Sims, a dear friend of the Church of Stop Shopping, which is the overall mother organization of this radio show and all of our activist performances. John is an artist, uh, a very important one. He has an exhibit right now in the Center for Contemporary Art down in Columbia, South Carolina. And the name of his exhibit is Aphrodixia, A Righteous Confiscation. Now, we will listen to him right now address the city council of that city, the capital of South Carolina. He's, he's addressing the city council because... Local city cops burst into his apartment with guns drawn and got him out of bed at 2 in the morning and handcuffed him. It was all a mistake, but they did not apologize. And in fact, they need to hear what John has to say. John Sims. So, dear mayor, the Columbia City Council, Columbia community, I want to address this to the whole wider community as well as uh, the council before me. 
Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for this opportunity to speak. My name is John Sims. I'm an artist, writer, and activist. For 20 years, I've been leading the national pushback on Confederate iconography with my project, Recoloration Proclamation, a system of work that confronts the ideas and symbols of white supremacy, visual terrorism, and the propriety of Southern heritage in the context of the African-American experience. Now, elements of this work have been all over the country, but I, I really want to you know, mention, uh, in fact, this work was inspired by protest, act, protest activism surrounding the Confederate flag being on the state capitol right there in Columbia, South Carolina in the late 90s. So it was an honor and historically fitting to receive an invitation by Executive Director Michaela Brown to come to 701 Center for Contemporary Art as an artist in resident and to stage the current show, Afrodixia, A Righteous Confiscation, which is a survey exhibition of my flag work. Now, if you haven't seen the exhibition, I'd like to invite you and the whole community to come over to 701 and see the show. Now I'd like to address the council about a very serious matter. On May 17th, sometime after 2 a.m. in the morning, the police entered my artist and residency apartment at 701 while I was asleep. At some point, they drew guns on me, detained and handcuffed me for over seven minutes, ran my license and then refused to allow me to take photos. I could have easily been shot and killed that night. So to tell my side of the story, I've created a detailed artist incident report which I've made available to members of this council before this meeting and will make public later today. Now, after this experience, I have millions of questions. What was the legal rights for the officers to enter my space? Why did the officers draw guns on me? How close was I to being shot? And why was I detained and handcuffed? Why didn't I have a chance to explain why I was there before I was handcuffed? Now, had I been a white woman in panties and a t-shirt, would I have been detained then? Why was my driver's license called in? Now, what if I was armed legally and fired on the intruders, not knowing that they were police? Would the stand your ground law apply to me? What would have happened if a muffler had been uh, a car with a, a bad muffler and sound off that popped off when my hands were up? Would I be alive now? And why should I feel lucky to be alive as if it's some prize? And more importantly, why are black people consistently profiled to be a suspect, an intruder, a thief in the wrong place, assumed to be guilty first? Why is there no space to speak, no space to reason before detainment? Is this space reserved for executive looking white men who look like they can afford lawyers and publicists? And why when we tell the, the police that we can't breathe, they don't listen. And when we tell them that we are artists and residents, they don't believe us. Many black people ask these sort of questions all the time. And, might, and one might wonder why many of us don't trust the police and why we don't feel safe with the police and why maybe we should lock the door not only to keep out criminals, but also keep out the police. Now, reflecting on the recent anniversary of the death of George Floyd, this incident affirms to me that American policing profiling the persistent fear of death when we face the police in the streets, our cars, in our beds, are enabling elements to promote white supremacy and black subjugation. While I'm very glad to be alive, I know many never made it out alive. While I'm very fortunate to have a platform to respond, many are silent and ignored. The time has come for American policing to be held accountable and reconstructed in ways to put common sense and humanity first and racist maneuvers last. Because law and order without civil rights is a very dangerous proposition, a dangerous affront to freedom and liberty. Now, while I appreciate the chief's comments 
I mean, about being part of a national conversation about community police and engagement and criminal justice reform through training and policy and culture, I do not appreciate his statement that his officers conducted themselves professionally and within policy and that the only misstep was not allowing me to take a photo, which in fact served to protect the police and not, and pe and not people like me. It is time to talk, to go beyond the talk and be a part of a national conversation that starts with the police having an honest self critique and vulnerable acknowledgement and an apology when things go wrong and correct policies when they fail innocent citizens, especially black and brown ones. Perhaps a crash course in critical race theory for the police department might be a great place to start because expecting black people to continue to accept this insane treatment of racial profiling, gratuitous detainment and toxic disrespect is not an option. Assuming black people are out of place is not an option. Slave catching days are over. The Civil War is over. Now I'm almost done here. As we approach the anniversary of the Charleston Nine, there's an opportunity for South Carolina to lead this country in this historical moment past the Confederate state of mind with work in the areas of social justice, anti-white supremacy policy, and progressive policing. I trust and hope and ask this council will lead this effort because the world is watching. We are watching. Your grandchildren are watching and they will be watching. And to black people here and beyond, we must keep watching, keep complaining and hold our government officials and police departments accountable. Our lives depend on it. And to my fellow artists and writers and activists, get ready. We must defend the creative space, the living space to tell the truth and advocate for justice and protect and express what it means to be human, to be free and to be alive because our civilization depends on it. So I wanna thank you for your time I want to thank 701, the Center for Contemporary Art, its executive director, Michaela Brown, for the invitation, and folks all over the country, especially here in Columbia, who have offered their support. I am glad and fortunate enough to be alive to continue my work. And we come to the end of today's Extinction Talk Radio. Thanks for being with us. This is Billy Talon signing off. I'd like to thank uh, John Sims, certainly. I'd like to thank Savitri D. I'd like to thank the Stop Shopping Choir for your radical choral work. And I'd like to thank the Fiery Eagles of Justice, Jason Candler and Brendan Burke. Um, we now would like to announce our sister radio show, which launches this Sunday in just a couple days, 2 p.m., that's Eastern Standard Time, we're New York-based. Come to extinctiontalk.com extinctiontalk.com and John Sims will be our featured interview that's a that's a talk show version of this half hour so you're welcome to join us there thank you may the earth be with you amen Hallelujah.